0: Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. And if you're staying in here with us, I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Kings 5. or, Or you could follow along with just that big... Insert uh, um, big insert in the in the bulletin. Hey, so so this morning we're continuing our summer vacation as a church. Uh, you know, so far this summer we've gone on road trips. We've been to the mountains. We even took a trip to the farm. Over the last two weeks uh, with Josh, we went to the lake with Peter, and then to the sea with Jonah. Uh, but you know, like. Have you, have you ever been or maybe had a small little trip that wasn't super fancy and ended up being like one of the best trips you've ever had? Um, not all great trips or great uh, things happen in fancy places, right? Uh, rather, sometimes some of the most life-changing experiences can be had in kind of unremarkable places. Places like, have anybody ever had a good time at the Yazoo River? Like, like muddy rivers and just you know, off the beaten path. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to meet a man named Naaman, and and we're going to go with him to this little muddy river called the Jordan. And there, at the Jordan, we're going to see the transforming power of God's grace to sinners like you uh, and sinners like me. And so with that, let's dive in, a lengthy passage, but um, this is God's good word. It's given to you uh, because he loves you. 2 Kings 5, we're going to skip a section there, but if you just read with me, you're, you're, you're there. 2 Kings 5, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, uh, was a great man with his master, the king, and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he uh, was a leper. Now, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Um, We're going to fast forward this next bit, but... Uh, he does go to the king. king doesn't know anything about it. In fact, the king thinks that the, that the leader of Syria is trying to pick a fight with him again. Um, verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper? Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and he went away in rage, but his servants came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you, will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then Naaman returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before Elisha, and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And Naaman urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, Well, if not, please let there be given to me two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord." Uh, real quick he just wants to take a, a bunch of Israel, uh, of Israel dirt uh, to Syria so that he can I guess lay it out and worship say he's worshiping on the ground of Israel so uh, verse 18 in this matter may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes to the house of Riman to to worship there leaning on my arm and I bow myself in the house of Riman, when I bow myself in the house of Riman, the Lord pardon your servant servant in this matter and Elisha said to him Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And Gehazi said, All is well. "'My master has sent me to say, "'There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophet. prophets. "'Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing.' "'And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents.' "'And he urged him, and tied up the two talents, "'and silver in two bags and with two changes of clothing, "'and laid them on two of his servants, "'and they carried them before Gehazi.' And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and he put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and he stood before his master and Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And Gehazi said, your servant went nowhere. But Elisha said to him, did not my heart go when the men turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So Gehazi went out from his presence a leper like snow. Wow. Um, Well, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, during these next few minutes, would you come and uh, penetrate our hearts through this word, Uh, Lord, that you would teach us, uh, teach us something good, Um, and Lord, we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Although this is a very old text, uh, since it is God's word, it is is oozing with reminders and applications uh, to us today, and what's great is since God knows that we often learn best through story. Uh, in this passage, God doesn't lay out his teaching in bullet points that are all kind of color-coded for you. But rather, he, he just invites us into a story to see some things about himself through the eyes of three different people. And those are going to be our three points. The first of which is probably the easiest to overlook. The little girl. You know, the author, he doesn't sugarcoat it. Uh, doesn't, he just tells us like it was, right? Uh, Israel's enemy, the Syrian army of the north, came into Israel, and on one of their raids, they captured and essentially trafficked this little girl. And it's not explicitly stated, but it's not a reach to speculate a little bit because we know of something of these ancient raids. Um, It's not hard for us to speculate. What what happened to her parents or maybe other siblings? You know, dad likely killed, mom likely used and abused, Little girl ripped away from her home, ripped away from her place, and taken off to a foreign country. And, and there was no Amber Alert. There, there's no one looking for this little girl. She would likely never go back home again. I mean, it, it's just one verse, but it's so painful if you really stop and think about it. It's so heartbreaking. But there's more. We find that after being captured in the raid, she's then forced to work in the home of the person who captured her, Naaman, right? The commander of the army. I mean, if anyone has a reason to be forever haunted by their past trauma, it's her, right? I mean, how do you get over that? Serving the very person who destroyed your childhood, who who robbed your dreams, stole your life. I mean, if anyone had a reason to hate the Syrians' guts and the ground they walked on, it was her, and, and so it should come as a real shock in the story that, that when her captor, Naaman, came down with leprosy. Like, this is what you pray, the, the imprecatory psalms, you're like, she's probably praying for that. But she didn't leap for joy. She didn't long for the day that she could dance on his grave. No, like, the only explanation for what she did is that the saving, that saving grace transformed her to do the impossible. Someone said this little Israelite girl, she's only mentioned in two verses of all of Scripture, but she may be the most faithful God follower in all of Scripture. It's just beautiful, this childlike faith that this this little girl has. And so she did what Jesus would later call his disciples to do and us to do, right? Things like love our enemies and then to actually pray for those who persecute us. And we know she came from a believing family. Remember, Israel during this time period wasn't a lot. It was, it was a remnant there, but it wasn't a lot of Yahweh worship going on. But we do know that her family came from a believing family because she knew of God's prophet Elisha. The king hardly even knew. And so this little girl with faith like a child, she got it. Okay? All right. I, I know y'all know this, but, but we don't always understand. Uh, what god is doing in the hardships of our life and i, I think that we all like maybe we we'll, before we die we we'll, you know, everything will make sense but you know likely in all likelihood you'll probably die not knowing all the things that god's doing in the heart of your life um, but you know sometimes we do get to see what god's doing right uh, so uh, one of uh our family's activities that we, we like to do is we watch reruns of Survivor. Remember the old show Survivor? Like, this is how far back, like, it's, I think the, it's currently, like, in season, like, 41, 42, something like that. We're, like, way back in, like, the 20s is kind of where we are. And in, in season 22, there was a believer, and if y'all have watched shows, you know, sometimes there's a Christian on there, and you, you kind of, it usually doesn't go too well for the Christian, right? They kind of vote the Christian off. Um, so there was this, this guy named Matt. He was like a legit Christian on the show. Not like, God's going to help me win this whole thing. It was like he was like a legit Christian. And in this show, uh, this particular uh, season, after you got voted out, you didn't immediately have to leave the game, but you went to this place they call Redemption Island. And on Redemption Island, you lived in isolation, awaiting the next person to get voted out. And when they got there, y'all would kind of do a duel and the winner of that might have the chance to go back into the game at some point later, okay? Uh, All right, so at like the second tribal council uh, on the whole game, uh, the Christian, Matt, got got voted out, and he was sent to Redemption Island where, against all odds, he would go on to win like eight duels in a row before entering back into the game only to be immediately voted out again. Uh, and be, and been, he was sent back to Redemption Island. And out of the 36 days he survived, it's like a 39-day show, right? He survived 36 days. He only spent seven days with his tribe. But he spent 29 days in isolation. And all the isolation at some point broke him. And in tears, he's being interviewed. He's like, the Lord is carrying me. That's the only way I can bear it. And he said, like, I don't know. Like, he thought he could come on the show and like, be a testimony to the world about God and his faith. But like like 29 days, he was off camera. He didn't know what God was doing and keeping him in the game. Uh, but he did say, you know, I, I don't even want to be here, but as long as God wants me here, I'm just going to strive to give him glory. Well, it turns out God was doing something in all that misery of Matt. Because Matt, the Christian, he won, he won so many duels, almost every single person, like every single person on the show who got voted out got to spend a ton of one-on-one time with Matt on Redemption Island, with no cameras around. And in a very winsome, uh, and yet intentional way, Matt shared his faith with every competitor. And he prayed with, and he prayed for his competitors. And it was the strangest thing. It's almost like it was two different shows. Uh, In this cutthroat, backstabbing show, every time he won a duel against his competitor, sending them home, they would give him the biggest hug, and wish him well, like genuinely thankful for their time with Matt. (laughs) And then it happened. One of his competitors was, you know, early in the show, she's like into karma and like new ageism. She spent a couple of days with, with Matt, and after Matt beat her in a duel, um, she said that after spending time with Matt and hearing the gospel, she couldn't wait to leave the game, go home, find a church, and get involved. And, and, and Annie and I are <laughs> like we're watching this with our jaws on the floor, and like tears are, are starting to roll down our cheeks, and then it happened again. Another guy joined Matt on Redemption Island in isolation. And when he exited the game, he too said that he was thankful for his time on Survivor because he and Matt got to talk about spiritual things and he grew closer to God. And in hindsight, Matt saw that him being in isolation all that time was like the best thing because God used him like the Dickens to call one of his daughters and one of his sons home back to him it's fun when we get to see that right what god's doing in the heart. Well, we get some of that here you know our passage opens with this vivid reminder and this is why peyton read psalm 24 it's like by the way god is like the god of the world right that this vivid reminder of god's total sovereignty uh did you catch it in verse one naaman was a great commander a great man held in high favor why why was he it's because the Lord, because Yahweh had given him victory, had given victory to Syria. And we read that, and, and we think, like, what? Like, well, I, I thought God was, like, pro-Israel. Like, what's he doing helping out Israel's enemies? And I, well, that, that thought is putting God in a box in which he cannot be contained. As, as Dal, Dale Ralph Davis put it, look, God's not some mascot of a little Jewish club. Okay. He is the Lord of the universe, which means God even directs Syrian politics. And it means that the UN has nothing on our sovereign God. It means everything that's going on in Washington, everything that's going on down in South America, everything that's going down in South Africa. Like, God is sovereign over all of that. And yet, what's equally amazing. Is not only is God sovereign in the big events of human history with the big players, but we see here that he's also sovereign over the small and just these mundane circumstances, even the hard circumstances of ordinary life, even as small as this little girl, this all but forgotten little girl. You know, I hope that encourages you, you know, as you're at your job or you're with your family. Um, that God is sovereign even over little things, even over you, your family, even over the decisions you make. And y'all, we don't won't always understand it, but we cling to the promise that God has placed you, and He's placed me in this place during this time for His sovereign purpose. And so this girl's mundane evangelism changed Naaman's life forever. Y'all, we cannot underestimate the impact of quiet, hidden lives of faithfulness. Okay? All right, so that's the little girl, which then brings us to the second person in our story, uh, this, this man, prideful man named Naaman. You know, Naaman was rich, he was successful, he had power, he had status, he had it all, and yet he was a leper. He had a big problem. Um, you know, in the Bible, oftentimes leprosy represents well, it represents sin. It represents uncleanness. It means that you are you are in isolation, right? You're you're cast out away from community. Uh, in a communal society, that is one of the worst things that can happen. And if you think about it, our world, maybe even you could say our town, is full of Naaman's, uh, isn't it? It's uh, big time people, big time jobs. Who shop at all the cool stores, drive the cool cars, everybody wants to be their friend. They are for sure, they are for sure the people's choice. They have everything the world could offer. But they're alienated from God. The Bible tells us that apart from Christ, we all have a leprosy of the soul. Right? That that irregardless of how amazing you are, which I'm sure you're also amazing, that you, that we, we are all diseased. And so we're disconnected from the peace and the joy and the love that we long for. And so, what was it that Jesus said? Is that haunting verse? Is that what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, and yet forfeit his soul? Well, this little servant girl saw through all that. She saw that all the, the horses and all the chariots like that 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 wasn't getting it for name. Naaman. Naaman needed some cleansing. And so as one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is, she told about Yahweh's prophet, Elisha. And and here's where the gospel pops for us this morning. Naaman went, but he went using the world's metrics, right? That if he was going to be cleansed, then he was going to have to either earn it or he was going to have to, he might even have to buy it. And so he rolled up to Elisha's house, this is part that we skipped, but 750 pounds of silver, all this gold, ten sets of fine clothes, horses, chariots. His entire entourage screamed, I am somebody. But when he pulled up, Elisha didn't even come out. And he'd just been talking to the king. But Elisha didn't even come out. Elisha sent his servant out to say, hey, look, let's go down. If you want to be cleansed, just go down to the river. Wash yourself seven times. Done deal. And Naaman's pride couldn't stand it. He's like, you, like you, you know I'm an important person, right? Like, you, you know who I am. And so first, you don't see me, <laughs> and then you send your lackey out to me. And then, and then second, I'm not about to get in that muddy, stinky Jordan River. I might catch another disease in that thing. Like, I've got better rivers back home. He was so offended, right, that the way to cleansing was this lowly way. And also he was offended because it's a very narrow way. It's like he couldn't, he couldn't clean in all the rivers up north. But he had to clean there. It was one narrow door to enter. He's offended. His pride is offended. And he was offended like he thought that, that since he was somebody, Elijah was going to come out and put the razzle-dazzle on him. And, and he, or he might have to pay a huge price. Or he might have to go on this epic quest to earn cleansing. But the Jordan... I mean, any old Tom, Dick, or Harry could go down there. Granted, if they were humble enough to actually st- to, st- to stoop into that lowly river. To quote Sally Lloyd-Jones, All Naaman needed was nothing, and yet it was the one thing Naaman didn't have. God knew that Naaman was sicker on the inside than he was on the outside. Naaman was proud. He thought he didn't need God, but his heart didn't work properly. He couldn't feel anything. You see, Naaman had leprosy of his heart. God was not only going to heal Naaman's skin, but he was going to heal his pride. And so his servants helped him see this. It's, it's not in this translation. The original text has a kind of a different rendering. The, his servants were like, hey, look, you came all this way with all this money. like You were ready to do a great thing, right? You were, you were going to do anything that they asked. Well, why not do this? I mean, he did say, go, go down here to the river. And so here it is, Naaman, he gets it, and he knows now that he can't heal himself. He found that he couldn't earn it. He could only receive it. And so in humble obedience, he went to the river, and there at the end of himself, not only was his skin cleansed, but so was his soul. Did you catch that, that his skin was made like a little child, right? I think that should just, you you fast forward to what Jesus said about our souls, you know, our faith, right, being like a little child, uh, receiving him humbly. And he was converted. And it wasn't just him talking the talk. I mean, it was real. And we know this because when he came up out of the water, not only did he respond with thankfulness and in generosity, like he's trying to give a gift to the Lord's servant, but his lifestyle changed. And it's easy to, to read this and, and wonder, okay, all right, Naaman really saved because look, look at this, he's kind of like our kids, right? He's like, in, in verse 18, he's immediately asking for, like, repentance or pardon in advance for what he's about to do. That he's about to go back and he's going to continue worshiping this Syrian God. And he's like, just so you know, can I just kind of get advanced p- a pardon for that? Uh, and, and we read this and we think, look, I thought you just said there is no God in all the earth but Yahweh. But so what's all this rhyming business so talk, you know, talk about talking out of both sides of your mouth. Real quick, Ryman, that was just the Syrian name for Baal, so it's the same God, the thunder god, fertility god. Um, so, you know, this is this is huge. Naaman knew, as we find, that part of his job as the commander of the army, part of his job required him to escort the old king of Syria to worship. That the king of Syria was, was like literally, he's like older man, he's walking into the temple to worship, let this guy worship. And he's saying, as as the king bows down, I'm going to have to bow down. And just so you know, it's just, it's part of my job, okay? It it comes with the territory. I have to go in there with the king. And I just want you to know that when I'm in there going through the whole formality, I'm not going to be worshiping, Ryman. I'm a Yahweh worshiper, okay? That is my allegiance. That's the way that every Christian should be, like, when we get around all these other things, that our world, our culture worships, we're like, hey, I'm kind of here, and I'm just, but I'm, I'm not really worshiping um, this. Um, as Dale Dal Ralph Davis put it, the fact that Elisha sent him off in peace shows that Elisha wasn't overly concerned about it. Perhaps because Naaman was miles ahead of loads of other Israelites. Meaning that after his conversion, he had a sensitive conscience. that He, he, got, like, he got the real life implications of being God's child and then living in a world that That's lost. Like he felt the rub between his supreme allegiance to Yahweh and the expectations of his culture, his work, his nation. And instead of just going along with it and doing what everybody else does, like it actually bothered him. And he actually repented of it. Oh, Westminster, would that Christians in our sin celebrating, idol hugging culture be so bothered? I think we can learn some things from Naaman. Okay, like, have you been humbled to repentance to the point where I like, this is not what believers do. The rest of the world's doing this, but this is not what believers do. Have you have you gone not to the lowly Jordan, but have you gone to the offensive cross? And have you gotten grace, or better yet, has grace gotten you? That's Naaman. Which then briefly brings us to our third and final character, the greedy, greedy insider, Gehazi. Look, if you're in the church, uh, which I guess all of us are in the church technically right now, um, if you're here, um, this, this character is the most sobering by far. Because Gehazi was Elisha's servant, Right? Gosh, he was a he was a disciple, like he's the one who's on the inside, he's here in all the sermons. If anyone understood the need of God's grace, it would have been him, and yet he hated the whole concept of grace. He hated it. Naaman wanted to pay Elisha. But Elisha wanted Naaman to know that God's grace is a free gift, that you can't buy it, <laughs> you can't earn it. And so Elisha said, look, I I don't want any of your stuff. I don't want it. And at that, Gehazi, as you notice, his greedy heart could not stand it. So he tracked Naaman down himself, and he lied. He actually said, you know, the ministry could use some of that. Remember, we've got some guys coming in. He he concocted this whole story. And and then he came back home, and he kind of hid the stuff away in the house, and, and he lied again to Elisha. I mean, it kind of reminds us of another disciple whose greed and hatred of grace led him to go behind his master's back. Okay. Be it the wheat and the tares, remember that, in that parable? Or the sheep and the goats. Jesus is talking about how life is in the church. Jesus was always warning us about this, always Remember, he even told this, maybe one of his most famous parables, the parable of the sower, right? The sower went into a field, you know, sowing seed, and some of that seed fell among thorns, which grew up quickly and choked it out. And Jesus, in explaining this, he said, these are the people who hear the word. They hear it, and they are in the church. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches come and choke out the word. Okay. So being in the church, but not in the church, is what many people would call uh, nominal believers. You know, you confess that you're a believer, but your lifestyle does not in any way match up to what a believer's lifestyle is, Um, or you could call them carnal Christians. And just so you know, sometimes the waves of culture can be so strong that it's very easy to get swept away and and kind of drift as a church without even knowing it. And and one day you look up and you see that everyone else in your church, our church, looks like you and thinks like you and lives like you. And so you feel like you're in, I'm doing doing it, I'm walking the Jesus way, all the while it's very possible that the whole church has been choked. The whole culture has been choked. You know, in Revelation 3, there's this famous verse, right, that that Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and you let me in, and I'll come in and be with you. And we usually take that as like this individual evangelistic verse, right? That he's standing at the door of your heart, and he's knocking for you to let him in, and you need to let Jesus in. That's kind of how it's preached. But you know, in the context of Revelation, those are letters to the churches, right? To the churches, and so in, in its context, Jesus is standing at the door of the dagum church. And he's saying, behold, I stand and I knock. Would you let me back in the church, please? It's so easy to be a church that just kicks out Jesus, kicks out the gospel, uh, you know, in, in trying to do other things. And So I hate being the doomsdayer, <laughs> but here's the reality. And I'm borrowing this from another minister uh, Ronald Sider recently said, said this about evan- not, not liberal Christians, evangelical Christianity. He said the findings in several ref- reputable polls are shocking. Survey after survey showed that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles that are as materialistic, hedonistic, self-centered, sexually immoral as the world in general. He says about 6% of evangelicals tithe, um, and then he notes that white evangelicals in particular are the most likely people to object to neighbors of another race, like more so than even non-believers. White evangelicals? The sexual promiscuity of evangelical youth is only slightly less outrageous than that of their non-evangelical peers. And look, I hope you know. Like, I'm not. I'm not preaching moralism, and like, y'all need to do better and quit all your drinking and you're messing around. Like, be a better person. <laughs> no, but what we see here with Naaman is when you have been saved by the grace of God, then you will be plucked up off of the broad way in which the world is walking. You will be plucked up off the broad way and transformed, like made alive to walk a new way that's different from the world's way. A, a way that's contrary to the flow of the unbelieving world. And it'll leave us saying with John Newton, it's, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not even what I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not what I was. Right? Did you know that this story, and Josh read it this morning, this story with Naaman and Gehazi, like this is part of the reason Jesus' hometown tried to kill him, tried to drive him off the cliff. Why? It's because grace is always offensive, right? It's because grace tells us. I mean, they they hated that the outsider was the one who got healed and brought in, while the insider, Gehazi, right, his heart was exposed. The leprosy that was on the inside came out, and he was cast out. They didn't see that they all needed God's grace. Well, Westminster, so do we, right? And 2,000 years ago, Jesus came so that we could have it. And I know that, like, in case some of you are wondering, like, this preacher only preaches, like, one sermon. Um, like, week after week, it's new to me, okay? Because we all still need it, just in new ways. So on the cross, Jesus took our leprosy on himself so that in him, we too could be cleansed and transformed and brought in. And his saving work is for all of his people. It's for little nobody servant girls that everybody forgets about. It's for greedy, greedy businessmen. It's for prideful pastors. It's for doubting hearts, right? It's for those who are broke and lost souls and all who will humble themselves and run to Jesus for rescue. Whilst Mr. Jesus stands at the door and knocks, uh, may we be a Church and a people marked by His presence and His transforming grace. Amen? Amen. Well, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, You don't call us to be plunged in the Jordan seven times, and yet you, we are called to be plunged under something. We're reminded that there is a fountain that's filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilt, all their shame. Lord, may it be so in our hearts, Uh, in every soul at Westminster. May you do the work of wooing us to yourself, and may we in humble repentance go to Jesus and be made new. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.